You're listening to Season 9 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 9.6, The Tiger of Solomon, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a longtime Gundam fan, and I think that more people should get grandiose titles. Why can't Ted from Accounting be called the Manticore of the 11th Floor because of how brutally he rejects expense reports? And I'm Nina, feeling a bit sentimental about our fifth podversary. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by 701 paying subscribers. There aren't any new patrons to thank this week, but I'd like to get personal for a moment. I'm writing this on the five-year anniversary of the release of our first episode. We were inspired by our own favorite podcasts, and by the deep thoughts and long meandering conversations we had after watching movies and TV shows together, to start a podcast of our own. We had no idea what we were doing, and no particular confidence that anyone would be interested in what we had to say. If things had gone differently, we might have made a season or two and then abandoned the project, moved on to other things. But we all found each other. Our first month, September of 2018, we had 695 total listens. Last month, August of 2023, we had more than 44,000. Earlier this year, we reached 1 million total listens. It's impossible to know how many unique listeners we have, but we sometimes use weekly listens as a proxy for that, which would mean we have more than 10,000 listeners. I feel so honored and so proud that 10,000 of you around the world spend some of your busy lives, a chunk of your finite and valuable time, listening to our podcast. It is far beyond anything I imagined when we started, and I hope to feel the same way in another five years. So a big thank you to all of our listeners, past and present, who wrote a review, recommended us to friends, family, and other Gundam fans, and who bought us research books, printer ink, and tea. And to the people who make this a viable career for us, the monthly subscribers on Patreon and supporters on Ko-fi. Every bit of support, no matter the amount or the length of time you subscribe, makes a big difference to a small outfit like ours. I don't think I can call myself a Gundam noob anymore, but there is still plenty to learn and experience, so I hope you are as excited as I am for the next five years of watching, analyzing, and talking about Mobile Suit Gundam. Since Nina just mentioned it, I will add that this research piece would not have been possible without many of the research books that were purchased for us by listeners. So huge thank you to everybody who's bought us any of those materials. You will see some of your contributions in the show notes this week. And now Tom's research piece about the Tiger of Solomon. In 2014, while promoting his then-new manga 0083 Rebellion, Imanishi Takashi told New Type magazine that the Nightmare of Solomon, Annabelle Gato, was based on the Sengoku-era monk and warlord Uesugi Kenshin. There are reasons to doubt whether Imanishi or his team had this connection in mind when they made Stardust Memory, 
The interview I'm talking about was conducted more than 20 years after the original OVA series ended, and to my knowledge, nothing of the sort had been mentioned in the interim. By this point, Imanishi had had plenty of time to re-examine his own characters. In fact, as I mentioned, he was by that point working on a thorough revision and retelling of Stardust Memory for that 0083 Rebellion manga, and it's entirely possible that he came to a new understanding of Gato during the process of making that story. On the other hand, Imanishi, being the head writer, chief director, and most prolific storyboard artist on Stardust Memory, in short, the closest thing that the show has to a singular author, has got about the best claim of anyone to know what the team was thinking about when they made it. There are also some details in the show itself that might support his claim. They're circumstantial and easily explained by other factors or mere coincidence, but they're suggestive nonetheless. And even if this is only Imanishi's own ex post facto analysis of the character, rather than a real behind-the-scenes revelation, I think it's still worth examining. If nothing else, this tells us how Imanishi sees Gato, and thus, how he wants us to see Gato. Uesugi Kenshin is one of the legendary figures of the Sengoku period, a roughly century-long era of widespread civil war that began in 1467 with the outbreak of the Onin War, and ended, depending on how you define it, in 1573, 1580, 1590, 1600, 1603, or 1615. Although he lived at the end of the Sengoku period, having been born in 1530 and dying in 1578, the Uesugi clan he led had initially risen to prominence about 200 years before his birth, at the beginning of the Muromachi period. I wanted to do this research piece during Season 8, but when I started reading about Kenshin's life, I realized that while it would be easy to present a broad sketch of his career and repeat a few choice anecdotes, if I wanted to truly understand who he was and where he came from, I first had to understand his world and where it came from. There's an old joke that students of history love to tell. It varies in the specific details, but one version of it goes something like this. A professor gets up at the beginning of a lecture course and he says, now to explain the origins and causes of the First World War, I must begin with the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476. Well, the Sengoku era in which Kenshin distinguished himself was nested within the larger Muromachi period, and the rise of the Uesugi clan was intimately linked to the start of that period. To tell the tale of Kenshin, then, I must begin with the fall of the Taira clan and the creation of Japan's first military government in 1185. Back in Season 3, I spent some time, maybe too much, talking about the epic Tale of the Heike, an early piece of Japanese literature that described the events of the Genpei War, which was a civil war between two loosely organized clans of aristocratic warriors, the Taira and the Minamoto. Distant cousins through their shared ancestry in the imperial clan, both groups of warriors were nominally subordinate to the civilian aristocrats of the imperial court but they had by this time usurped effective political control over court and countryside. The Minamoto clan emerged victorious, and in the aftermath, its leaders established a new kind of government, the first Bakafu, which means something like government operating out of an army tent. The Bakafu split power with the traditional imperial court in Kyoto. 
the court retained much of its traditional, ritual, and civil authority, while the Bakufu and its leader, the Shogun, a title that is often translated as Generalissimo, were responsible for internal and external security and governing the warrior class. In order to avoid getting entangled in the deeply entrenched webs of intrigue and power within the old capital at Kyoto, the Minamoto clan established their new Bakufu government at their stronghold in Kamakura, near modern-day Tokyo. And so we call this first shogunate the Kamakura Bakufu. Out in the provinces, government authority had traditionally been exercised through a patchwork network of patronage, whereby local magnates and temples shared power with the aristocrats in the capital, their provincial agents, and the imperial administrators who were appointed by the central government. Now, the Bakufu inserted its own local agents into this system. At the individual farming estate level, these were stewards, called jito, drawn from among the low-ranking warrior vassals of the shogun. Above them at the provincial level was another new post, called shugo. Initially, this meant something like constable. The shugo were high-ranking warriors, usually the patriarchs of politically significant clans to whom the shogun delegated his responsibilities for internal security and management of the warrior class within their assigned provinces. Interestingly, at this point, the shugo themselves spent most of their time in the capital, and were usually assigned to provinces where they themselves lacked strong personal vassalage networks. This system forced them to depend on the shogun and his delegation of authority from above, as well as local allies offering power on the ground. Frequent rotation of assignments also prevented the shugo from forming their own independent bases of power in the provinces to which they were assigned. But I should note at this point that the farther you get from the capital, the less any of this is true. In distant regions like the island of Kyushu or the largely undeveloped northern part of Honshu, the central government was forced to rely heavily on entrenched local families, who were willing to accept the shogun's authority so long as he never tried to actually do anything with it. In the capital, the Minamoto clan almost immediately lost control over their own government. The clan's leader during the war, Minamoto no Yoritomo, had formed a marriage alliance with the powerful Hojo clan. When he died just seven years after establishing the Bakufu, his titles passed to his 17-year-old son, but real power fell into the hands of his Hojo widow and her father. The young shogun plotted to seize power back from his mother and his grandfather, but less than five years later he was arrested, forced to abdicate, and then assassinated by his own grandfather. The titles passed to his 12-year-old brother, who spent his short life as a pawn in a power struggle between his mother and his grandfather, until, at age 26, he too was assassinated, this time by his own 19-year-old nephew, who was in turn immediately killed thus ending the line of Minamoto shoguns. Over the next century, what we call the Kamakura period, the Hojo clan continued to dominate the Bakufu by appointing impeccably noble but utterly powerless candidates to become shogun, while actually ruling the country through a hereditary Hojo regency and a system of ministries staffed by Hojo vassals and professional bureaucrats. To lay it out then, this was a system of shared power, in which the nominal head of state, the emperor in Kyoto, acted as a figurehead for a regent who shared power with a retired emperor 
who was usually the current emperor's father, and who was the real head of government in the imperial capital. They all then delegated most of their power to the shogun in Kamakura, who was himself a figurehead with his own regent. Around the middle of the Kamakura period, the Hojo actually reduced the position of regent to a mere figurehead and vested real power in the head of the main line of the Hojo family. This system broke down for a whole host of reasons too complex and varied to discuss here. Things like crop yields, inheritance law, conflicts over the management of water rights, the gradual shift to a cash economy, impoverishment of the lowest level of the warrior families, and so on. But to break it down to just the big three political problems, two invasions by the Mongol-led Yuan Empire strained the shogunate to its political and economic limits, the collateral branches of the Hojo family resented the way the main line had monopolized power, and an ambitious emperor tried to reclaim his family's ancient power by rebelling against the Bakafu. In 1274, and again in 1281, large Yuan armies attacked Japan from the west. The Bakafu had advanced warning of those invasions, and it made certain preparations, building fortifications, ordering all the warriors who owned estates in the west to go and actually reside there, and setting up a small, quasi-standing army on Kyushu to be ready to respond at short notice. All of this was expensive, and under the system of the time, it was the local warriors themselves who were responsible for bearing that expense. Thanks to all of those social changes I mentioned before, many of them were already impoverished, and they were forced to pawn their lands and other possessions in order to be able to obey the shogun's orders. Traditionally, after a war ended, those who had fought well and survived would be repaid with interest from the spoils of the war but repelling an external invasion produces very few spoils. The Bakafu itself tried to make up the difference, but it lacked the resources to adequately compensate everyone involved in the fighting, and so they were forced instead to order emergency measures, like debt cancellation. These were both inadequate to the problem, and they alienated the wealthier families who had been taking this opportunity to consolidate their holdings, ultimately undermining support for the Bakafu at every level. The Hojo had also responded to the impending invasions with a series of purges of perceived dissidents within the family and its vassals. While this temporarily strengthened the mainline branch of the Hojo family and its most important allies, once a government starts sending men with swords to murder dissenting factions, it is usually only a matter of time until the civil war starts. In 1285, one courtier who narrowly survived a particularly widespread purge described life in the capital as a decade walking on thin ice. Finally, in the 1330s, the retired emperor Go-Daigo rallied military supporters for an attack on Kamakura and the Bakafu, intending to oust the shogun and return Japan to the pre-Genpei War system of direct rule by the imperial family. The specific dynastic situation that led to this break is both very interesting and very complicated, but the short version of it is that Godaigo's great-grandfather had tried to disinherit the descendants of his eldest son in favor of the descendants of his second and favorite son. But his plan failed immediately, and the Bakafu, for reasons of its own, enforced a system of alternate succession, where upon one emperor's death or abdication, the next emperor would be picked from the other lineage. 
and the influential position of retired emperor, the guy who actually ran things in Kyoto, would also alternate, going to whoever was the current reigning emperor's father. Exploiting widespread dissatisfaction with the Bakufu, Godaigo, an energetic emperor now removed from power, went into open revolt. The Bakufu responded by sending an army under a general from the distinguished Ashikaga family to put down the rebels. But this Ashikaga general switched sides, attacked the Bakufu, and installed Godaigo as emperor. Godaigo immediately launched his Kenmu Restoration, a project to restore direct imperial rule, return real power to the civilian aristocrats of Kyoto at the expense of the warrior class, and return Japan's political system to something like that of the Heian period. The plan failed immediately, and within three years the Ashikaga had rebelled, seized Kyoto, and placed their own puppet emperor on the throne. Godaigo himself escaped, and he established a rival imperial court in the south, from which his heirs would keep up a spirited but ultimately futile resistance against the Ashikaga-dominated northern court for the next 75 years. The Ashikaga now established their own bakufu located in Kyoto, with the Shogunal Palace built on Muromachi Street, near modern-day Doshisha University, and hence the name Muromachi period. Members of the Ashikaga family would continue to hold the position of shogun for the next 237 years, up until Oda Nobunaga abolished the Bakufu in 1573. Now this is where the Uesugi clan finally enters the story. Before demolishing the old Kamakura Bakufu, the Ashikaga had been based in the eastern part of Japan, north of Tokyo, enjoying some long-standing patronage ties to the imperial family, and they were closely linked to the Hojo clan. They had been distant relations of the old Minamoto family, and had joined in on the Minamoto side during the Genpei War. The Ashikaga patriarch at the time was married to a woman from the Hojo family, a connection that wound up making him the brother-in-law of the first shogun. Successive generations of Ashikaga cultivated this connection by consistently marrying women from the Hojo clan. Out of seven generations of Ashikaga patriarchs, five of them took Hojo wives. The other two married women from the Uesugi clan, an indication of the long-standing alliance between the Ashikaga, who claimed descent from the imperial line, and their vassals in the Uesugi, whose ancestors were merely noble. When the Ashikaga established their capital in Kyoto, they faced the difficult problem of how to manage the country that they had just seized. In particular, the region around Kamakura, the Kanto, had long been culturally and politically distinct from Kyoto and the Kinai region around it. That was part of why the Minamoto had put their capital there in the first place. And to make matters worse, all of the chaos surrounding the collapse of the old Bakufu and the rise of the new one had given the local warrior families the opportunity to consolidate and expand their holdings, creating huge blocks of contiguous estates and large armies of vassals loyal to them personally. They had never been more self-confident or independent of the central administration, and they were loath to start taking orders again. This problem would only get worse, plaguing the Ashikaga shogunate for its entire existence. But in the Kanto and other outlying areas, it was already bad enough to cause serious issues for the new shoguns. The Ashikaga tried to address this by placing a regional Bakufu outpost in Kamakura, 
and dispatching one of the shogun's sons to administer it. This Kanto Kanrei, or shogunal deputy for the Kanto region, was only a child, and so the real political and military power in the Bakufu's Kanto branch would need to be exercised by an experienced general acting as guardian and assistant to the deputy. This system failed almost immediately. Not one to be daunted by failure, the Ashikaga shogun tried again a few years later, but this time he sent a more reliable assistant with close ties to the Kanto region, a warlord from the Uesugi family. This time the system failed slowly. The Ashikaga representative in Kamakura established himself as a kind of quasi-independent shogun for the Kanto, and after assuming this superior position, he passed the title of shogunal deputy for the Kanto to the Uesugi family, who would hold on to it for the rest of our story. The Kamakura branch of the Ashikaga family didn't last very long, and several attempts to re-establish the system also failed immediately. But the Uesugi, with their strong local presence in the region, were able to hold on and maintained something like order over the Kanto, even if they only paid lip service to their supposed masters in the Bakafu. This same process was playing out all over Japan, from the central Kenai region to distant Kyushu. Powerful local families were growing more powerful and more assertive over their areas of influence. Minor warrior families that had once been direct vassals of the shogun found that their erstwhile patron no longer had the power to protect their interests, and so they turned instead to their more powerful neighbors. The Bakufu's provincial constables, the shugo, found themselves struggling to maintain control over these powerful families, and in response, the Bakufu granted them greater and greater legal power that transformed them increasingly into what we would call independent military governors. The Bakafu tried to retain control over these newly empowered Shugo by requiring them to live in Kyoto and exercise their power through provincial deputies, but this was only partly effective, and often the Shugo were forced to rely on one of the powerful local families to run the province in their name, which as you can imagine just ended up turning that powerful family into the real rulers of the province. At its most stable, the new Bakufu operated as a coalition government, with a relatively weak shogun relying on the Shugo families to run the government and the provinces while playing them against each other in order to maintain a balance of power. The shogun never had enough force in his own right to put down even a single powerful Shugo, but any family that did revolt would be swarmed by its eager rivals and destroyed in short order. This system actually functioned moderately well for about a hundred years, but in 1441, one of the Shugo from the Akamatsu family got fed up with the Shogun's political machinations, and he had him killed during a no performance at the Shugo's own mansion. The Akamatsu themselves were then immediately destroyed by their rivals, just as predicted, but this created a new problem. The Shogun's meddling, the Akamatsu coup, and the ensuing reprisals had together destabilized the balance of power, leaving only two increasingly polarized factions to fight over control of the Bakufu. In 1467, as part of a succession crisis that is as complex and interesting as it is stupid and pointless, armed retainers from the two factions started skirmishing inside the mansions of Kyoto itself. One mansion was burned in March, another in May, and by July they were burning down whole neighborhoods, with more than a hundred thousand troops fighting pitched battles in the streets of the capital. 
Ten years went by like this, during which time the central government all but collapsed. And out in the provinces, local warriors took the opportunity to settle old scores and carve out a place for themselves in the history books. Many of the provincial governors, the Shugo, fled the capital and ensconced themselves in their provincial headquarters. There simply wasn't much left of the capital to seize, and the Bakafu was kind of just going through the motions. The shogun himself was busy writing poetry and planning his new palace while the country burned. Each lord could only rely on the strength of his own vassals and the wealth of his own territory. And thus, they became the first daimyo of the Sengoku period. Shugo, who had neglected to cultivate these personal relationships out in the provinces, soon discovered that the loyal deputies who had been running things in their absence all this time were actually not super excited about having the boss on site looking over their shoulder, so to speak. These deputies established themselves as daimyo in their own rights, creating famous samurai lineages like the Chosokabe, Asakura, and, most famous of them all, the Oda. Still others discovered that with the general breakdown in social order, a lot of the long-suffering peasants and smallholders in their territory had become, let's say, somewhat skeptical about being ruled by anybody. Rebellions by autonomous peasant leagues, religious sects, and confederations of minor warrior families broke out all over the country. Some, like the Iko Iki of Kaga, managed to defeat samurai field armies and seized control of entire provinces. Over in the Kanto, the Uesugi clan found their role of shogunal deputy increasingly precarious, and this was compounded by that usual tendency of any ruling clan to divide itself into feuding factions that fight each other for dominance in a fratricidal war. In the Uesugi case, this lasted for nearly 50 years before one branch was able to establish its dominance thanks to the intervention of a powerful vassal named Nagao Tamekage in 1505. Like the Oda, the Nagao family had been deputies to absentee Shugo lords during the early part of the Muromachi period, and they were long-standing vassals of the Uesugi. After his intervention in the Uesugi Civil War, however, Nagao Tamekage developed ambitions. Two years later, he betrayed and killed the Uesugi governor of Echigo province, and when another Uesugi lord was appointed to take up the position, Nagao did away with him too. He was assisted in all of this by an upstart of mysterious origin, who had assumed the old name of the Hojo clan and exploited a civil war in nearby Izu province to seize power for himself some 15 years prior. Since that time, he had taken every opportunity to weaken the Uesugi and expand his own power in the region, making him and his newly established new Hojo clan natural allies for the ambitious Nagao. Caught between the two rebels, the weakened Uesugi united, but it wasn't enough to stop the gradual erosion of their territory or the rise of the Hojo. In 1545, the leaders of the two surviving Uesugi branches called together a massive force, including a coalition of troops led by anti-Hojo daimyo from throughout the Kanto, and they marched on Kawagoe Castle. It's sometimes claimed that the Uesugi force was as large as 80,000 men, but under the circumstances, it's likely that the real number was significantly less. You know how medieval sources are when it comes to numbers. Whatever the count, the new Hojo clan was only able to muster a significantly smaller force to relieve the siege. 
When negotiations for a peaceful settlement broke down, the Hojo launched a daring night attack directly at the Uesugi headquarters. Caught by surprise, the Uesugi were smashed and routed, and one of their two leaders was killed in the fighting. The other, Uesugi Norimasa, fell back to Hirai Castle, but the Hojo advanced and took that stronghold in 1551, forcing Norimasa to flee again. By now the strength of the Uesugi had failed utterly, and there was nowhere to go except to take refuge with a most unlikely ally, the Nagao clan of Echigo, that had been so instrumental in bringing the family to their knees in the first place. By now, however, the rebellious Nagao Tamekage had died. The traditional story says he was killed in 1536, along with many of his best warriors, while trying to put down one of those autonomous peasant leagues. Alternatively, other sources and more recent scholarship suggest that he actually retired in 1536 and died eight years later of illness. Medieval sources. From this point forward, there are going to be two competing narratives for most of these events. One that is more dramatic and probably significantly embellished, the other less so. Either way, as of the succession, Tamekage had four sons, ranging in age from the oldest, 27-year-old Harukage, to the youngest, 7-year-old Kagetora. The middle two brothers are going to get themselves killed without achieving much of note, so I'm not going to worry you about their names. Now, the legends say that at this point a power struggle broke out within the clan's senior vassals over which of the brothers should become head of the clan. As the story goes, all of the good and wise vassals immediately recognized seven-year-old Kagetora as the best of the heirs, but certain wicked and selfish counselors formed an evil conspiracy to elevate the sickly and easily manipulated Harukage by killing all of the other candidates. In this version of events, one of the middle brothers tries to flee and is cut down at the castle gate, but a handful of loyal servants manage to hide young Kagetora in a hollow under the floor and then spirited him away in the night to the home of a sympathetic priest who brought him quietly to the distant home of a certain Hueski vassal who raised him to be a mighty warrior and defeat his wicked brother. At some point in here, he was also raised and educated for some years in a Buddhist temple, which seems to have left a deep impression on him. Can I just make a guess that the Tora in Kagetora is tiger? No spoilers! <laughs> Harukage's men still pursued Kagetora, and so he dressed like an itinerant monk and wandered in the wilderness with just a few good companions. This is the part of the legend where Kagetora does and says a bunch of things that are going to foreshadow his coming greatness, like when he goes to the battlefield where his father may or may not have died and pledged to pacify the angry ghosts by avenging them. Eventually, when Kagetora was around 14, Harukage found out where his young brother was hiding and sent an army to capture and kill the kid. Kagetora was able to gather a small force of his own and he repulsed the Nagao clansmen a feat that he was forced to repeat regularly over the next five years, winning many great victories and displaying his preternatural gift for battlefield strategy. In 1549, when Kagetora was 18 or 19, the people of Echigo province, finally fed up with life under the thumb of Harukage's wicked ministers, collectively begged Kagetora to return and lead them to glory. Despite his powerful feelings of fraternal duty, he reluctantly agreed and launched a campaign against his brother, who, realizing that he was utterly defeated, 
killed himself. Even still, Kagetora refused to assume the mantle of head of the family. He shaved his head, took religious orders, and decided to retire from the world. It was only when all of the Nagao family retainers signed a petition begging him to stay and rule them that Kagetora finally relented and agreed to take the job. The less dramatic but more plausible version is that Kagetora had already been sent away to be raised at a nearby temple, likely because he was the youngest of four sons and the family had decided that he should become a priest. Big brother Harukage took the reins of the clan without much incident in 1536, but their father had never really pacified Echigo province. He was better at creating chaos, and Harukage was not up to the task of holding the line. Thus, the Nagao family steadily lost ground until 1543, when the 14-year-old Kagetora came of age. Acting as a field commander under his brother's direction, Kagetora quickly won himself a reputation as a talented and charismatic leader. As he matured through his teenage years, and as Harukage continued to struggle, the senior vassals of the clan approached their lord, and they suggested that for everyone's good, maybe he ought to retire. In December 1548, he agreed to do just that, and 19-year-old Kagetora became head of the Nagao family. In both versions of the story, the new Lord Nagao spent the next three years suppressing rival families, chastising recalcitrant vassals, and transforming one or two of his bitterest enemies into his most fervent supporters. Then, in 1550, what was left of the Bakufu acknowledged Kagetora's success by elevating him from deputy governor of Echigo province to actual governor of Echigo province. One of those promotions where you get a new title, but it just describes the job that you're already doing. And that brings us back again to 1551, with Uesugi Norimasa fleeing his lands and looking for any clan strong enough to protect him from the ever-advancing Hojo. And thus, when he sought refuge with the Nagao clan, it was the 21-year-old Kage Tora who said, Yeah, sure boss, you can crash on my couch for as long as you need until you get back on your feet. And then he added, oh, but I do have a couple of conditions. Condition one, you're not the boss anymore. I am. That vestigial title of shogunal deputy for the Kanto that you're still holding on to even after all of this, that's mine now. Condition two, you're going to adopt me into your much more prestigious family, and I'm going to start calling myself Uesugi Masatora. Masatora because he was replacing the Kage taken from his biological father's name with the Masa from his adopted father's name. Kagetora, now Masatora, is going to change his name a couple more times in this story. He had already discarded his childhood name, Torachio, and later, as a sign of respect, the shogun Ashikaga Yoshiteru awarded him permission to incorporate the shogun's own Teru kanji into his name, making him Uesugi Teru Tora. The Tora in all of those, as Nina anticipated, is from the character for Tiger, so named because he was born in the year of the Tiger. And it is from this that he is sometimes called the Tiger of Echigo. He was also called the Dragon of Echigo because dragons are really cool, but for our purposes, the Tiger one is the more important nickname. In 1570, he took vows and became a Buddhist priest, which was a fairly common thing for warriors to do at the time, and while there is every reason to think that he personally took his religious practice pretty seriously, things like the precept against killing never got in the way of his career as a warlord. 
With his vows, he also received a Dharma name and became, as we know him still, Uesugi Kenshin, daimyo of Echigo province and shogunal deputy for the Kanto. The combination of Uesugi prestige and Nagao muscle united in the charismatic, courageous Kenshin proved extremely potent, and he swiftly became one of the most powerful and famous of the Sengoku-era warlords. As ruler of Echigo, and later conqueror of Echu and Noto provinces, he proved an able administrator, but his fame was won on the battlefield. And he had plenty of opportunities to prove his skill, because immediately upon unifying Echigo, he found himself caught in a triangular rivalry between the Hojo to the southeast and the famous Takeda Shingen, ruler of Kai province to the southwest. All three families were strong, energetic, and aggressive, but none of them was powerful enough to beat either of the others decisively. This stalemate itself has become the stuff of legend. Famously, Takeda Shingen and Uesugi Kenshin fought a series of five major battles in the same spot over the course of 11 years, taking occasional breaks in between to go and kick the Hojo around when they weren't busy suppressing rebellions. The Shingen-Kenshin rivalry in particular is legendary for many reasons, in part because the two seem to have earnestly respected each other's skills and enjoyed the contest of arms between them, at least according to the mythology that has grown up around them. When Shingen was dying, he is said to have declared that after he passed on, Kenshin would be the only worthy man left under heaven. He advised his son to make peace with Kenshin and form an alliance saying that Kenshin was the sort of warrior whose word you could trust without fear once it was given. Kenshin, for his part, is said to have lamented, I have lost my rival, and we shall never see a hero like that again, when Shingen died. Do note, though, that we ought to take everything about this with a grain of salt, because the main source for details about Takeda Shingen's life is a hagiographic biography that was likely written by the samurai Kosaka Masanobu, a general serving under Shingen, who was also his lover. Which is to say that while he was intimately familiar with many of the events in question, his viewpoint may not be entirely objective. By the way, just as an aside, this isn't like, oh, we speculate that maybe they were lovers. Part of the practice at the time was for two samurai who were going to engage in a love affair with each other to write up basically a love contract and deposit it somewhere, and we still have that love contract. I think I mentioned that offhand when I was talking about young men uh, approaching each other's families about engaging in romantic relationships. And Yeah, I think you did. This particular one includes a clause where... Uh, Shingen promises not to have an affair with a particular other samurai, Ooh. so apparently there was some jealousy. Part of the appeal in this rivalry is also that Kenshin is the archetype of the sacred warrior. He was renowned for his devotion to the war god Hachiman, to the point where he is himself sometimes called the god of war, and is nearly always depicted wearing a monk's white headscarf, even in battle. He was so noble and pure that when the Hojo managed to block shipments of salt from reaching Takeda's stronghold, the landlocked province of Kai, and the people there began to suffer badly from the lack of it, instead of taking advantage of his rival's vulnerability to end the war, Kenshin sent a message to Shingen saying, I fight you with the bow and the spear, not with salt. I will provide you with as much as you need. 
and then instructed the merchants of Echigo to sell salt to the Takeda at a fair price. Shingen then becomes his worldly counterpart. The Takeda family's power was founded on gold, the rich gold mines in their mountain provinces, and horse flesh. The Takeda cavalry was said to be the best in Japan. Where Kenshin was celibate throughout his life, Takeda was bisexual and polygamous, with at least 12 children and a still unknown to history number of concubines. In fact, in one of those twists that belong in a Greek tragedy, Shingen seized the daughter of a slain enemy and, over the objections of his advisors, made her his concubine. She soon bore him a son, who became the heir, and in time, that son would lead the Takeda clan to its ruin. This view of Kenshin as divine and Shingen as worldly is emphasized by Kenshin's own propaganda. He emphasized his own righteousness while accusing Shingen of various kinds of impieties, destroying temples, exiling priests, insulting the gods. Shingen may well have done those things, although other sources indicate that he was a relatively pious warlord for the time, who protected the temples and made alliances with various important priests, but this is also just one of those things that you say about your enemy when you're rallying support for another campaign. When Kenshin set off on campaign, he conducted an elaborate religious ceremony involving prayers, drumming, a symbolic banquet, chanting, more praying, demonstrations of respect for his generals, demonstrations of respect from his generals, auspicious flag-waving, and so on. The whole thing is actually performed annually by reenactors in Yonezawa, and because we live in the modern day, you can watch the whole thing on YouTube. It's pretty cool. I wanted to contrast this with the Takeda pre-campaign ceremonies, but I couldn't find any information about them. We do, however, have a famous anecdote about how Oda Nobunaga prepared himself, which should serve to give a sense of contrast. When that warlord set off to crush the Imagawa clan at the Battle of Okehazama, he is reported to have put on his armor, recited a passage from a popular song that means something like, A life is only fifty years. This world is no more than a dream. Then he wolfed down a bowl of porridge while standing up, and that was that. Of the five famous but inconclusive battles between Kenshin and Shingen, all fought in a mountain valley called Kawanakajima on the border between the provinces of Shinano and Echigo, the fourth was the largest, bloodiest, and most dramatic. If you've ever seen the Toshiro Mifune film Furin Kazan, this is the climactic battle at the end of the film. You know what Fudin Kazan means? It's the Yojijuku go for like swift as the wind. Uh, uh, it's four different elements and they all represent different like martial virtues. It's from Sun Tzu. It is what Takeda put on his banners. It's swift as the wind, gentle as the forest, fierce as the fire, and immovable as mountains. The battle was fought around a Takeda fortress built on the flat land at the bottom of the valley. Shingen occupied the fortress with an army of some 20,000 men, while Kenshin on the attack deployed his 13,000 on the mountainside overlooking the fort. For about a week, they sat glaring at each other, each waiting for an opportunity. Takeda Shingen decided to move first, with a daring plan. 12,000 soldiers would climb the mountain in the dead of night, circling the long way around until they could attack Kenshin's position from above. The surprised Uesugi forces would be thrown into confusion and forced to retreat down the mountainside and into the valley, where the remaining 8,000 Takeda troops would be waiting to envelop and destroy them. But Kenshin either discovered or anticipated the plan. 
because at the same time that the Takeda detached force was climbing up the mountain, his men were descending onto the plain in darkness and total quiet. Thus, when the hour of the rabbit arrived, which is to say when dawn broke, it was the Takeda who were surprised to discover their enemies, not fleeing in disorder, but advancing in battle array through the morning mist. Seizing the initiative, Kenshin's vanguard struck the flank of the Takeda army. The first to engage was the unit of samurai commanded by Kakizaki Kageie, fighting under the banner of the giant radish. He's not important to this story, I just wanted to tell you about his giant radish banner. At the same time, Kenshin himself led his personal guard directly at Shingen's exposed headquarters pavilion. Here is where things get legendary again, but this sequence of events is so key to the legends of the two men and their eternal rivalry that you are just going to have to accept that it happened, whether it happened or not. Before Shingen even realized what was happening, Kenshin's men broke through and attacked his position. Kenshin himself, mounted on his favorite warhorse and separated from his bodyguards, burst through the cloth curtains that ringed the Takeda command post and slashed at the surprised Shingen with his sword. The latter didn't even have time to draw his own weapon, but blocked each attack with his iron war fan. Only the timely intervention of Shingen's guards saved the daimyo. Kenshin's horse was wounded by a spear, and he was forced to fall back. Despite this attack, the Takeda forces put up a stiff resistance, and Kenshin's army was not able to break their resolve during the first phase of fighting. Now the Takeda flanking force, having discovered the abandoned Uesugi camp and hearing the sounds of battle below, came storming down the mountainside. Kenshin had left a force in his rear to block this move, but these soldiers, now outnumbered twelve to one, fell back, and by the hour of the horse, which is to say around noon, the Uesugi army found itself trapped in the same pincer maneuver they had dodged that morning. They fell back, and the exhausted Takeda let them go. Both sides declared victory and returned to more secure territory to lick their wounds. There would never again be another full-on pitched battle between the two, although they would return to Kawanakajima three years later to glare at each other in a warlike manner over the site of their more famous confrontation. Soon, Takeda was forced to turn his attention to the rising power of the Oda clan in the west. He fought a series of battles against Nobunaga's ally, the future shogun Tokugawa Ieyasu, and then died under somewhat unclear circumstances in 1573. Three years after that, Kenshin's own outnumbered army dealt Nobunaga's forces one of their worst defeats at the Battle of Tadorigawa. Again, he feigned vulnerability and tricked the Oda troops into launching a daring night attack, but then, again, he pounced upon them with his entire army. The Oda retreated, and Kenshin returned home for the winter. He forged an anti-Oda alliance with the new Takeda daimyo, just as old Shingen had hoped, but then he died, probably from cancer, in the spring. He was 49 years old. Besides a righteous warrior, Kenshin is remembered as a man of culture, a poet and a musician. Despite being celibate himself, he was said to be fond of love stories like the tale of Genji. He showed great concern for the well-being of his subordinates and the younger members of his family, but was quick to punish perceived slights against his honor and position. For a daimyo of his time, he showed unusual deference to the vestigial traditions of court and bakafu rule, even to the point, perhaps, of wanting to revive those old institutions, and he placed a high value on hierarchy and authority.
The historian Fujiki Hisashi called him a Sukuinushi, a savior for the people of Echigo, but a demon from hell for the people of the territories he attacked. In comparing Kenshin to Gato, director Imanishi described both as men absolutely convinced of their own righteousness, warriors who believe their conviction can stop bullets, men with the kind of single-minded drive that seems impossible for normal humans. He likened Gato to a vegetable pickled in Xeon ideology, the sort of person who has cast aside all family ties and parental obligations in order to devote himself utterly to the cause. It is easy to see the comparison between the two. When Gato leaves his escorts behind and flies alone into the heart of the Federation fleet in order to directly attack the Admiral in command, that looks a lot like a Universal Century version of Kenshin's famous ride to personally attack Shingen's command post. On the aesthetic level, and here we need to get speculative, there are a few points of similarity to connect the two in the show. While Gato's overall look was inspired by French-American actor Christopher Lambert, his long white hair may be meant to evoke the monk's white cloth headdress that became part of Kenshin's battlefield raiment and features in most later artistic depictions of the warlord. On the other side, his long-term frenemy Takeda Shingen is consistently depicted wearing red armor and carrying the war fan he so famously used to defend himself during his clash with Kenshin at the Fourth Battle of Kawanakajima. And Gato also has a red-clad, fan-wielding eternal frenemy with a worldly outlook that repudiates his high-minded ideals. And in the end, the rivalry between Shima and Gato does become irrelevant in the face of the overwhelming power of their mutual enemy, the Federation which, if we extend this metaphor just a little bit further, might as well stand in for the overwhelming dominance of the Oda clan. And hey, remember how every one of Kenshin's names included the character for Tiger? And how he was sometimes called the Tiger of Echigo? And how Shima spends the show lounging on the pelt of a white tiger? Well, maybe that explains why Gato's last name is the Spanish word for a cat. He might be the original White Devil, and the Spirit of Zeon, and the Nightmare of Solomon, but he is also the little Meow Meow of space. Perfect ending. 10-10, no notes. Thank you. Next time on episode 9.7, Demons, Harbingers, Protectors. I dig into the history of Tengu in Japanese mythology so that we can decide once and for all whether Mansha is one. Until then, stay Genki, folks. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to hosts at gundampodcast.com. And thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.
rise of the Ueski and the rise of the Ueski. It's a hard word to say over and over again. Ueski. I practiced so much. <laughs> but when you hear when you hear native speakers say it,、mm-hmm. it sounds a lot more like Wesugi. Yeah, it's it sounds、Uesugi. like they're just saying Wesu,、mm. even though the kana is Uesu.、Mm. Because of how brutally he rejects, because of how brutally he rejects, there aren't any new patrons to thank this week. But I'd like to get—I need a different word for sentimental.、Um, Condition two: I'm going to call you daddy. Ooh, I don't like that. 